All right. Good morning. Good to see you all here. Why don't we start heading back to our seats? I know uh, since the children are not going to Grace Kids, we have a little bit of time. And as you're taking your seats, just a reminder, we have our coffee hour afterwards, and it's an opportunity for you to uh, continue the conversations, talk to some folks, and wish each other a happy new year. I mean, last Sunday of the year, and uh, looking forward to what God has in store for us for 2024. But uh, I want to invite you now to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our reading today is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, we ask that uh, this morning you would meet us here in a profound way, just as you directed these wise men 2,000 years ago um, to encounter Jesus, to worship him. I pray that you would do the same today by the power of your spirit as we look to your word. Meet us, Lord. Uh, Transform us. Encourage us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I read a story uh, about two to three years ago, of a antique enthusiast that loved going to yard sales on Saturdays. And they were outside New Haven, Connecticut. And at one sale, they came across a small ceramic bowl. It looked kind of distinctive and interesting. $35. I mean, why not? So they bought the bowl. They bring it home. They're looking at it, looking at it. It just looks different. It looks special. So they decided to get this thing appraised. And they took it to someone who is an expert on Chinese ceramics. And the person looks at this thing and says, this is really very special. I mean, the style of painting, the shape of the bowl, even the color of the blue here is quite characteristic of something from the early 15th century Ming dynasty. I mean, this is a true story. They're like, you know what? There's only seven of these such bowls in the whole world, and they're all essentially in museums. 
and we're all waiting for the punchline. How much is this thing worth? Okay, half a million dollars to start at auction. I mean, this person, like you know, you dig around and you hit the jackpot. Who's an antique enthusiast? Of course, they don't want to be identified because they don't want the owner to figure out I sold someone this half a million dollar thing for thirty-five dollars. They don't share their name. And uh, it, it was like this amazing story um, that you hear about occasionally as someone finds a baseball card or a car rotting away in the barn or, you know, you find a Botticelli hanging in someone's living room. But here's the thing that struck me about this story. How can you have something of such great importance and value right before you and miss it, Okay. How is it? Because there's no way this thing just showed up in your house. It had to have been passed down generation to generation. But along the way, someone lost track of the fact that this was an incredibly valuable Ming Dynasty ceramic. And it went in to a yard sale for $35. You know, it's not that hard, actually, to have something of great importance and value right before you. And we absolutely miss it. Because think about the birth of Jesus Christ and the birth of Messiah. Who actually is looking for Jesus after he's born? The greatest event in the history of mankind, even if you don't believe Jesus was God, the reality of the presence of Jesus has changed human history. I think everybody can agree with that. Matthew describes him as the newborn king. Something tremendous has happened in the world right under people's noses. And no one is looking for the king except who? A bunch of wise men who are making this incredible journey from maybe 700, 900 miles away. Foreigners, non-religious people. Well, at least they weren't Jewish, right? They're traveling a great distance and they're saying they are looking for the king. And this morning, I want us to consider this story, maybe familiar to a lot of us, but I think there's something here that we all need to hear today, regardless of whether you feel like you've been a Christian a long time, or you just come into church for the first time, or back at church in a long time. Because in this story, you begin to realize who is and who really isn't looking for Jesus. Because let's start with the wise men, and let me talk about them for a second, because I know a lot of you know the old Christmas carol. We three kings of Orient are, right? We know that song. Maybe you sang it recently. But notice here in this passage, nowhere does it say there were three. Did you notice that? The three gifts, okay? Uh, And actually, historically, some have argued that there were 12 wise men and three gifts. Three gifts don't tell us how many there actually were. It also doesn't say they were kings. You notice that? Wise people. And uh, notice also in verse 11... They show up at a house, okay? The event did not take place on the night of his birth. I think all scholars pretty much agree with that. These wise men probably saw something in the heavens, maybe even up to two years prior to the birth of Jesus, two years prior, and Jesus was born, and they made this trek of 700 plus miles. So Jesus may have been a very young, maybe toddler or so by the time this event takes place. But what else do we know about the Magi? 
They were the most educated people of their day. Think of them as professors in philosophy, astronomy, astrology, and interpreter of dreams. They're from the elite institutions of the known world. They were court officials, advisors to kings. I mean, these were important, important people of their day. Today, we call them scholars and experts, those who predict the financial markets, the weather, world events, trends in technology, right? They give uh, advice based on their research and wisdom. We value these people. And the last thing we need to know about them is they're incredibly wealthy, and we see this in the things that they bring. I mean, my goodness, to make a journey, uh, a multi-year journey, probably on your own dime, you had to be wealthy. They probably had a whole caravan. And what a contrast it is from last week's passage, for those of you who were here, when we saw the announcement of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. First went out to who? Lowly shepherds out in the field who were poor. They were humble. And we have here the learned, the successful, and the wealthy who are seeking this newborn king, Jesus. You know, in essence, you have the wisdom of the nations looking for the newborn king. And they have left behind, as I mentioned, the comforts of home and family, taking this very long and difficult and dangerous journey just because they saw something in the heavens that told them something amazing has just happened. You know, it's kind of reminiscent of some of the things we see in Isaiah chapter 60 where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and king to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And these are the people who are showing up. And what stands out, if you begin to read the passage... Who isn't looking? You know? Because who isn't looking? It's the religious leaders. Notice what's going on here. These wise men get all the way to Jerusalem because they expect if a king is born, he will be born in the capital. He will be in a palace. And he goes there and there's Herod who becomes aware of their quest. He gets the chief priests and the scribes together and asks them, what do the prophets say? I mean, where is this new king to be born? And instantly, everyone knew the answer. In verse 5, they say what? In Bethlehem of Judea, and they quote the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And here's the thing. You know what that means? These guys knew the truth. These wise men only have a shred of knowledge, a shadow of the whole thing. They leave the world they knew to go across the known world in order to worship this king. But the religious leaders will not put on their sandals and go on this five-mile walk over to Bethlehem to check out what the scriptures tell us. Isn't that, like, pretty amazing? Why would these guys travel two years on camels? Can you imagine the journey? And those who have this information from the scriptures are not even willing to go five miles to check out what the Bible actually says. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, when he talked about the hard-heartedness of the religious, he said this in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, isn't that a beautiful image? He's saying, you know, people are going to come from all over the world to do what? Recline at this table. They're going to find their way into the family of God. There's going to be a place for them at the table of God. It's a beautiful picture. And immediately after he says that, he warns the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. It's like, whoa, wait. So these other people are going to come. They're going to worship and they're going to be with the people of God. And the sons of the kingdom are going to be thrown out into other outer darkness. He's trying to prod the Jewish people by saying the Gentiles actually had way more interest in Messiah and Christ than you do. Maybe you're familiar with this. Sometimes the more people know the Bible, the more resistant they can be. It feels really paradoxical, but it may make sense. Because rather than leading to life change, that knowledge sometimes gets used as a shield of some sorts to keep God at arm's length away from you. And it can lead to self-righteousness, to arrogance. But we're saying, God, we know you. I know enough about you. Just leave me alone. You know, you become more resistant to the spirit of God and to a relationship with God. To the kingdom of God. You, you don't care about those things anymore. You're like, well, maybe I'm now a Christian. I'm saved. That's good enough. And you start thinking, I'm okay. But everybody else, they need Jesus. Okay? They need to repent. My roommate, my friends, my coworkers, the family you spent Christmas with. You, know, you, you start thinking, everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs change, healing. But it's never you. And you realize in this passage, it's the religious who won't lift a finger while it's the Gentiles who come from the other end of the world to worship Jesus. And I think part of what this is trying to show us is God is saying, hey, perhaps you need to be shaken out of your own complacency, your spiritual lethargy, your indifference. I mean, it reminded me a bit of what we saw earlier this year when we studied the book of Revelation. Remember, to the church in Ephesus, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, you have abandoned the love you had at first. He said, you, you know, you know the gospel, you know the scriptures, but you have abandoned your love for me. He goes on to say in Revelation 3.15 to the church at Laodicea, again, he's talking to Christians. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen 
and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. The non-response of the religious establishment. I mean, is it more convicting? You, you begin to understand, wait, these people aren't doing anything. And here are these people coming from probably Persia or Arabia. And let me add a little bit more onto who these people are. They are pagans. You know, the word for wise men in Greek is magoi, which means magi is another word you may hear of. And that's the word from which we get magic, magician. These are people who are into the occult. A lot of scholars believe they're from Persia or Arabia, and they were Zoroastrian worshipers. And here's the remarkable thing. This is who God reveals himself to. The great physician comes to gather the sick, not the healthy. I mean, the first to recognize Jesus as Savior and King in the Gospel of Matthew, other than the immediate family, are Zoroastrian astrologers. It's mind-blowing. In Luke's Gospel, you have the shepherds who are the first to receive the birth announcements as we talked about. Lowest in class, uneducated, people of little value, no one cared about them. They get the news first. And when you put these two stories together, you begin to understand something. Jesus has come for those that we think do not belong in the family of God. When you think about the ministry of our Lord Jesus, he is always inviting those people we would never invite to our parties. You know, if you're having a New Year's Eve party and you have a list and you invite people, there's probably some folks who get left off. Those are the people who end up Jesus brings in. It's really interesting, right? The demon-possessed man, the woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman at the well who confesses, well, I've been married four times and the person I'm with right now, well, that person's not my husband. The leper, all the people no one wants to be friends with. And Jesus invites all of them in. Everyone from the wealthy and the intelligent to the lowly to all those, he's saying, look in the mirror and realize I have come for you. You know, if you're here and you're wondering, I don't even know if God would ever have room for you. I don't even know if God would ever have room for someone like me. If you're sitting here thinking that, this story is telling you Hey, just as the wise men were welcomed in and received this news of the Savior, God is saying, I have a place at my table for you. You are welcome. You are here. You can come. You can connect to me, not because you've done everything right, but because you are unable, and that's why I've come to take on human form to be born as a child, to be vulnerable, to experience life as you have, to walk in your suffering in order to die for you and to be raised so that you would have new life. This is the message of Christmas that is being teased out here. And it's for those who are saying, Lord, 
I don't even know if I know enough. And Jesus is saying, come, come and see. For those who are saying, I got it all figured out. I did everything right, Jesus. I don't need you. I'll just follow all your rules. Jesus is saying, do you understand? You are not understanding because you're the one who would not even put the sandals on and come find me. There's always room at his table. And that's a remarkable thing, and it's such good news. That's the first thing I want us to see here. Now, there is someone else who's looking for Jesus in this story, isn't there? It's not just the wise men. It's actually Herod. Because when Herod learns from the wise men, the king of the Jews has been born, he takes notice. Because he thought these foreign dignitaries have come in who show up in town. They're causing a stir. They are looking for the king to give him tribute. And he's thinking, this is for me. And they're saying, where is this king of the Jews? He was just born. And Herod realizes something. Wait a second. If there is someone else who's the king of the Jews, that means I can't be king of the Jews. He wants to remain king. Because everyone in Jerusalem knew Herod was not the rightful king. He actually had no hereditary claim to the throne. And people had no allegiance to him. This is just known historically. You go back to Josephus and the other historians, and they bear this out. And so if a new king's been born, it is a threat to his reign. This is why in verse 3 it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And notice what it says afterwards. And all Jerusalem with him. You know why the whole city was troubled and terrified? Because this man was known to be paranoid. Okay? If you go back and read the historical accounts, he was so worried his wife might try to take his throne, he had her murdered. Then he got worried his two sons were going to take over. So he had them strangled. I mean, if you go to Israel and you go to one of the main sites, which is this uh, fortress built up on a mountaintop called Masada, and you got to take like a cable car up there unless you are in really good shape and want to hike this thing, you go up there and you realize he built this thing to protect himself, Herod, from everyone who wanted to take his throne. This guy was paranoid, and so the people of Jerusalem knew something bad was going to happen If he really believed there was another king who was to come. But here's the thing. Herod actually gets it. If there is the true king, that means he cannot be king. There can't be two kings. And this is the reason he has such a strong reaction against Jesus. And maybe that's why some of us do as well. Because if you're the king, you don't like him when someone else claims that throne. You want to remain the king of your life. You don't like anyone else claiming those rights in your life. But inside every one of us lives a little King Herod. We like to say, this throne is mine. My life is mine. And this comes out, I don't know, a thousand different ways every day, doesn't it? No one wants to hear That maybe we don't get to decide what to do if Jesus is our king. He does. I mean, do you see what I'm talking about here? We say, you know, this is my life. This is my time. This is my money. This is my body. This is my career. We want Jesus 
to be a life coach of some sorts, but not a king. I want him to be available. Maybe I can text him real quick when a crisis shows up. I need him to fix that. Otherwise, you can just stand an arm's length away, Jesus. Stay out of my life. Let me go to heaven, but just don't mess with me. Okay? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I am king. What did he say? What did Jesus say? If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself. Take up your cross and follow me. You know what? Denying yourself, you have to give yourself fully to his reign. Because this king demands total allegiance. Because he is saying, I've come to give myself fully for you in every single way. And he's saying, if you're going to have me in your life, I need to be your king. And this, my friend, is part of what we always struggle with in our own Christian lives. For those of you who've been a part of the church for a long time, saying, Lord, I need you to reign. And that means we need to say, Lord, I need to give myself to you more and more. But to the degree you worship him, to the degree you understand what he's done for you, we begin to trust and give more and more of ourselves to him because we know his reign is good. His words are true. That he is a God who actually wants our flourishing and the flourishing of our community and our world. And we say, Lord, we need to follow you. And we give ourselves to him. See, this is what's going on in this passage. And it's confronting us through this journey of these wise men. Now, the last thing I want us to point out here and think about together for a little bit is notice the wise men, they followed the original constellation that they saw, whatever they saw in the heaven, and it got them to kind of like sort of the region of Judea, and they got to Jerusalem, but they realized what? They were in the wrong place, okay? They're close, but they didn't find Jesus. How did they find Jesus? First, It was the scriptures because they heard from who? The chief priests and the scribes that helped them. The scriptures pointed them further and closer to Bethlehem to Jesus. That's like part one. And then this most incredible thing in verse nine. What happened? After listening to the king, they went on their way. They're heading to Bethlehem. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And I know some of you are very scientific and you're thinking, and you're thinking, this makes absolutely no sense. Wait, even if it was Halley's Comet or a conjunction of planets or a supernova, how can that thing occur again and lead them right over to the place where the child was, kind of like a spotlight on this house. And I've heard many, many scientific possible explanations, but I think they all miss the point. Because the point of this passage, the point of the birth of Jesus, is that it was supernatural. Science cannot explain it. It is God intervening in history And it's not meant to be explainable by science. 
The star kind of functions like the pillar of fire in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were enslaved and headed out of Egypt. Remember this? God leads them by a pillar of fire. It's something supernatural, and it leads them to where? Mount Sinai, where God dwelled. And what this passage is showing us is God is revealing something incredibly specific to these three men. So what did it take for these guys to get to Jesus? God was at work. That's the thing you need to hear. And they had to dig into the scriptures as well. And this is a primer, I think, on how God guides people to himself. You know, we always think we find God. But what this passage is showing us is oftentimes God is guiding us. We get there and we realize later on, oh, God was at it the whole time. And he does this through his word. He does this through even dreams, sometimes miraculous things. I mean, you often hear about these stories of how God uses events, circumstances, situations to awaken themselves, uh, awaken these people to lead them to himself. He sometimes uses hardship and suffering, feeling empty or even boredom. I read a story uh, about an inmate in a prison who was lying in the bunk, looking at the bunk above him, right? He's in the bottom. And someone had scribbled on there, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. So the guy was like, I am really bored in prison. <laughs> so he gets a Bible, he opens it, and he reads, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I mean, he was intrigued. He was hooked. He kept reading. It was the first step to him becoming a Christian because as he continued to read the scriptures, guess who he met? The king of the universe. I mean, if you're sitting here and you're saying, gosh, how do I find God? I mean, I'm here because someone invited me. I have a little interest. I'm here, but I don't know how to connect to him. Or I don't know how to reconnect to him. I think this passage is trying to tell us one of the places you have to go to is you got to start with the Bible, the scriptures. Read for yourself what God says about the world, about you, about his love, his plan for redemption. Maybe get together in this new year as 2024 kicks off and say, I need to be with other people to begin reading and studying. Maybe in one of our community groups or our Monday night men's Bible study. If you want uh, a Bible study that's specific to guys. Or maybe one of our many women's Bible studies. But you begin to hear other people interact with the Bible. Hear how God's been at work in their lives. Start there. You got to start somewhere, you know. Don't end up like the scribes and the Pharisees who are just sitting there with information and unwilling to do anything about it. Pray to God. Ask him to reacquaint you to his incredible love if it feels like something that was so long ago. But say, God, I want to draw near to you and I need you to draw near to me. And that's what we find in this story. Well, what happened when they actually met Jesus in verse 11 and 12? 
they go in and they just see Mary and this little child. I'm sure Mary's thinking, who are these people? Okay? You, maybe you guys came to the wrong house and you needed to be over there. But they show up. They are incredibly overjoyed. They're so excited. They bow down, literally prostrate on the floors, on their knees, and worship this little child. And then they begin to unwrap their gifts. I mean, gold, frankincense, myrrh. These are extravagant gifts. This is not a $10 gift card to Starbucks, you guys. Like, this is some serious gifting. Remember uh, the story of the woman who was sinful and she had a little jar of perfume around her neck that she anointed Jesus with? And the apostles were saying, that's like a year's worth of salary. That stuff was made out of myrrh, you know? Think about little bottles of myrrh that are like $10,000 for little things. Jesus is being given extravagant gifts by these people. You know why? Because they are so overjoyed. They begin to understand this is a king like no other. And we want to give him tribute, all of our treasures, all of ourselves. This is what happens when you begin to encounter Jesus for the first time. All the things that are important to you are no longer important, and you want to give all of yourself fully to him. You know, in Romans chapter 12, maybe this is the meaning of the verse. You know, offer up your lives as a living sacrifice. Offer up yourselves to him who has already given himself to you. They are absolutely floored, and they worship with joy. You know, J.C. Ryle, who was a, uh, a British pastor, uh, bishop, actually, and a Bible scholar, wrote on this passage these words. And he said, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine savior of the world. They fell down and worshiped him. We read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. I mean, that's a really strong statement, you know? They are saying, we have found the wisdom of the world. We have found the king of the universe. I mean, they are so overjoyed, right? They are giddy. And they offer all of these gifts. And then what do they do? They leave. They hear in a dream, do not go back the way you came and take a different road. You know, and I think that means a couple things. One is they actually had to go a different way to be sure they're safe. But I think taking a different road also means, metaphorically, it's a new journey, a new life. Because they have met and encountered the Savior of the world. My friends, this is available not just to them, but to us today. 
And for those of you here during this season, this Christmas tide, as we enter into the season of Epiphany, which starts this coming Saturday, where we celebrate Jesus being manifest in his glory, yes, would God give us eyes to see that which is beautiful, that which is a treasure, that which is valuable before us would be something we behold, worship, and honor so that we would go out to live for him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, this morning we ask that just as uh, the Magi, the wise men, were able to come to you as you led them, Father, would you allow us to experience the incredible joy the wise men had in seeing the newborn king of the world. Let that hope and joy fill us in such a way that we would give ourselves to you and to one another in ministry and service, that this community would be able to point to the goodness of you, our Heavenly Father, the humility of our Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to make these things manifest in our lives. Bless us this way, Lord, today. We ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.